3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise that unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to late 30am. And good morning, listeners. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast here on 855am. And in the studio this morning, um, your hosts are Grace and Carly. Good morning. It's <laughs> nice to be back. I feel like I haven't been here for seven whole years. <laughs> and where did you travel to, Grace? Um, I went to Aranda Country in the Central Desert. And it was amazing. It's so insanely beautiful up there. Mm. It's, yeah, it blew my mind. And you brought back the hot weather with you. I did. <laughs> Um, so we have a jam-packed show again for you today, um, the 3rd of October, and the time now is 7.03am. Uh, and first up, we're going to be speaking with Rosa Jamin, um, and she's going to be speaking at the Wheeler Centre on the 10th of October, and she's a journalist um, with SBS Radio Kurdish News. Um, and then we're going to be listening to an interview that M has done with Samia Khartan, um, and about Samia's book, Australianama. And then at 8 o'clock, we're going to be hearing from Monique, who is a lawyer with the Human Rights Law Centre. And we'll be talking about the Australian government's new bill that is seeking to expand the use of cashless welfare cards. Yeah. And then lastly, we're going to be speaking with Kutcher Edwards, who's recently launched his YouTube channel, Kutcher's Carpool Kuriyuki. <laughs> and um, he has released his first episode featuring Archie Roach and Uncle Jack Charles. And so we'll be speaking with him about this. From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC. A 3CR supporter. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japarang Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japarang country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty.
And uh, unfortunately, Kate Kelly couldn't join us in the studio this morning because she got a flat tyre. But lucky for us, Kate is now on the line and will be delivering the news headlines for this morning. I am. No bike tyre will stop me. (laughs) (laughs) The first up this morning, we have Social Service Minister Anne Rustin, who um, is playing down comments in which she suggested an increased new start would simply end up in the hands of drug dealers and pub owners. Rustin was quoted by the Murray Valley Standard as telling a single mother's forum in South Australia that the government can't just keep on adding money to this basket because we're not making a difference. She reportedly went on to say that giving people more money would do absolutely nothing and probably all it would do is give drug dealers more money and give pubs more money. The comments, which have provoked outrage from welfare advocates, come as the government pursues a trial to compulsory drug test 5,000 welfare recipients and as it dismisses widespread calls to lift the rate of the unemployment benefit, which currently sits at about $280 per week for a single person. On Wednesday, Rustin appeared to suggest the reporting of her remarks was misleading, telling Sky News she had been arguing that policymakers needed to deal with individual barriers to employment. To Hong Kong, where thousands of people hit the streets yesterday to denounce the shooting of a teenage student shot by police amid an escalation of force that has deepened the gulf between protesters and authorities. Many who joined Wednesday's demonstrations held their hands over their chest in tribute to 18-year-old Sang Shikin, who was shot by a point-blank range on Tuesday with a bullet narrowly missing his heart. Sang is in a hospital in stable but critical condition after surgery to remove the bullet. The shooting rocked much of the city as it was the first time a live round has been shot at protesters in the four months of unrest. Protesters in turn warned Hong Kong authorities that they would not back down. Outside Sang's school, a press conference, one declared this was war. The protesters were sparked by anger at a now-withdrawn extradition bill, but have since expanded into a broader pro-democracy movement, with five core demands, including an inquiry into police violence. And lastly, the owners of a popular North, North Bay cafe, Barry's, have been accused of underpaying 73 workers over $180,000, with one person allegedly shortchanged over 12000 The Fair Work Ombudsman has announced they've, com- they've, commenced commercial legal, uh, they've commenced legal action against the owners who allegedly paid their employees a flat rate of 18 to $23 an hour. That resulted in underpayment of hourly rates, casual loadings, overtime and penalty rates. The Ombudsman will also allege the company directors took unlawful action against one employee by not giving him shifts after he asked about wages that he was owed. The Ombudsman will seek a court order requiring the full payback payment of employees. And that is it for Thursday's headlines. Oh, great. I'm so glad that you could be called in, Kate, for the news headlines. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. Have a wonderful <laughs> You too. All the best with, you know, fixing your tyre. <laughs> yeah, <I guess. laughs> And um, now I think we might head to a track. Um, And this one is called Wave by Kayla Truth and Nagra Beats.
And that track there was Wave by Kayla Truth, um, a young MC who uh, works up in Minjin, Brisbane, and also Logan. Um, and now on the line, we are joined by Rosa Gamian. Um, she is the executive producer of SBS Radio's Kurdish program, and her journalism highlights stories that concern the Kurdish community here and abroad. Rosa is speaking at the Wheeler Centre on Thursday, the 10th of October, and we're very privileged to have her on the show. Welcome, Rosa. Thank you so much for having me. So at the Wheeler Centre, you're going to be sharing um, your life and work. And at the beginning of your life, um, you spent it living through the Iran and Iraq war. Um, could you speak a little bit more about growing up um, amongst this? Yeah, so I was born in this uh, Kurdish, uh, well, predominantly Kurdish inhabited uh, city of Kirkuk, which is uh, until today disputed between um, uh, the Iraqi government and the uh, Kurdish government or the self-autonomous uh, Kurdish uh, government, uh, uh, which is part of the federal Iraq. Um, so this 
city is still disputed, uh, but yeah, I was growing up there until the age of 12. And uh, yeah, life uh, didn't seem ordinary from the, you know, from the minute I was aware of my surroundings, mm. to be honest. And um, often asking questions, you know, uh, was shut down. Um, as a, as a little kid, because even parents at the time couldn't answer your questions because, you know, from the fear of persecution or, you know, you know, we know that children don't have filters. And so, you know, I could go to school and speak about what my parents thought about the regime, um, which was the Iraqi Ba'athist regime under Saddam Hussein's control. And so, you know, families could, you know, get wiped out just uh, and there were many examples of families, you know, being persecuted or never seen again because their children said something at the school. So uh, this was life, and you know, you were aware that things weren't normal. You know, the army would knock on your door, um, you know, at least once or twice a week, looking for things, searching through your house, looking for any sign of um, sort of opposition to the regime. And so uh, this is like for a child. You know, um, I was at a very young age. I could question why is this happening? Can this be normal? Mm. Um, so it wasn't long until um, you know Iraq went and invaded Kuwait in uh, 1991, mm. and uh, which resulted in the Kurdish uprising uh, of 1991, and then led to the mass exodus um, uh, following that. Um, and so we had to flee along with the. Um, Four million Kurdish inhabitants of that area, and so uh, this was my childhood, basically. And um, not uh, long after that, uh, we ended up uh, in Turkey, which we um, there we sought asylum uh, through the United Nations, and uh, ended up in Australia in 1996. Mm. Um, And in an article you wrote, "How did we end up in this nightmare?" um, that features on SBS, you speak about waking up. Um, under Saddam Hussein's regime um, and how you would listen to the fearless Kurdish radio. Is that something that sparked your passion for radio? Um, This was the beginning of it, I guess, because uh, radio and journalism in general started right at that era of my life when I thought uh, when we um, were listening to that radio was during the uprising. Mm. And uh, so my dad would turn it on and, uh, you know, it was really hard to actually listen to because, you know, it was being uh, uh, broadcast, you know, secretly from the mountains. And so um, so it started when we, we were um, actually refugees on the mountains. We spent at least two, three weeks um, without any adequate, you know, shelter. We were just in our cars. Um, and so... Um, it is also, I think, mentioned in the article where a French journalist um, actually knocked in on a window and uh, tried to speak to my mom and just to get her opinion. And then, I mean, at the time, it seemed a bit immoral because there were these people, you know, try, aware of, to me, it was like, these people are aware. So the world is aware of what's going on, but nobody was doing something. Mm. So it was, I think, at that point where I thought, you know, one day, um, I can't have that power. Uh, I can be in the media and um, actually, you know, be the voice for the voiceless. Mm, absolutely. Um, especially because I think that radio and just media generally has been so dominated by um, that mainstream narrative, um, which, 
yeah, sometimes fails to leave out the yeah, voices. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, especially in those countries. I mean, uh, I can mention here that, uh, for example, SBS uh, Kurdish program was established in uh, 1984, and uh, you know, at that time, Kurds all over the Middle East or in all those countries that they live in, they were not able to, you know, um, have a say, let alone have a radio that's, you know genuine, that's um, objective and, you know, the, that wasn't um, there just uh, to spread propaganda or regime propaganda. So, mm. um, you know, there were language programs, Kurdish language programs or TV, but it was it was a piece of propaganda. Of course, any regime would use it um, to brainwash. Mm. Um, now, Kurdistan is a non-governmental region and it's one of the largest stateless nations in the world. So I was just wondering, what does it mean um, to you to be Kurdish? Um, it's uh, Kurdish. Kurdishness is so complicated. Even when I was approached about this uh, upcoming event, and um, when I was, uh, you know, to speak there, I had to think about my identity. <laughs> I had to think about. Uh, you know, am I in exile, and what does it mean for mm. me uh, as a Kurd to be in exile? Um, I mean, we do have a semi-autonomous region, as I mentioned earlier, um, in which is part of Iraq at the moment, and uh, actually now is the second anniversary of um, the very controversial referendum for independence in that mm. region. Um, which didn't go down well, even though it had, uh, you know, over 93% of uh, yes. Um, but, uh, of course, this was the people's voice and uh, nobody else agreed <laughs> with the Kurds then, so including, you know, the Western powers that uh, really um, are friendly and Kurdish allies, um, especially against uh, the war against um, ISIS. So even they didn't agree on this uh, independence uh, vote. Mm. But uh, coming back to your question, actually, um, Kurdishness is, um, you know, I feel that it's an identity. And, uh, you know, at this day and age, we we often, um, you know, speak about uh, everybody being free to call themselves whatever they want to, right? And especially when it comes to your ethnic identity, and it's something that you can't escape. Nobody can escape, you know. And often in the Middle East and in all those countries that Kurds live in, um, majority, for example, in Turkey, then Iran, and then Iraq, and um, also in Syria. Um, throughout the centuries, I can say that uh, they're trying to take that away. They're trying to um, say that you don't exist uh, in Turkey uh, at the time, uh, you know, not long ago, actually. Uh, we could still call it modern history. Um, you know, you were called the Mountain Turk. Mm. Um, but, you know, what can you do? Like, but you're not. <laughs> you're not a Turk, you know. Uh, you're, you speak a totally different language from um, Turkish and Arabic, for example, um, which is an Indo-European language, um, Kurdish, uh, closer to Persian than any others in the region. And uh, today, I mean, to me... I am Kurdish Australian, and Australia is my only home, mm. uh, or only official home. So that's why, um, as I said, 
coming back here to the event, I had to think about it. Do I belong to anywhere else, any other state uh, where I am exiled from? Um, you know, I, I felt exiled where I was living, where I was growing up as a young child, um, because I wasn't able to be myself. Um, I was persecuted for being myself. Um, you know, um, I we grew up uh, speaking uh, Kurdish at home. That's the only language I knew. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, primary school came, and I went there, and I had to speak and listen and expected to know a totally different language, mm. which was Arabic. So, without you know, without any basic preparation, without any basic support for any child to learn a new language, and uh, so that you know, all this. Um, as I said uh, earlier, kind of make you question from a very young age, why and who are you and why? And so I think not only because I am Kurdish, but even as an outsider, if I look at it from, you know, know, I'm I'm very, very far away from Kurdistan. Um, I think um, at the same this day and age, it's really, really unbelievable for Kurds to suffer from uh, really basic rights, like just being called what you are. So this is this is my struggle, and this is what I try to, you know, um, when I retell my story, is try to make people understand how it is to feel um, that way, and, and not being able to. Be yourself, and you know we don't talk about characters. We don't talk about be expressing yourself in you know artistic way, but it's actually the very basic question of identity. Mm, absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much, Rosa, for joining us here on 3CR this morning. And yeah, if listeners do want to um, hear more about Rosa's work and her life um, history, then definitely head to the Wheeler Centre on Thursday, the 10th of October. Is there anything else you'd like to let listeners know, Rosa? Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, and I uh, look forward to the event and meeting everyone there. Thank you. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japurung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japurung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The campaign to protect country is led by Japurung traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japurung country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. Six years I've been in Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. 
brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know, it's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going, you know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there. As prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 And just before we were speaking with Rosa Gominian, um, and yeah, she'll be speaking at the Wheeler Centre on the 10th of October. Um, just such an interesting life. Um, and yeah, now she's the executive producer on SBS Radio, which is, um, yeah, just incredible. And now we're going to head to a track um, called Change by P Unique and Crown and also IMMXO. Here it is. Too long, you know I gotta wake up. All these illusions in my head, I gotta break up. And everybody wanna say I ain't no fighter. But I'ma show them every day that I'ma rise up. We gon' be okay, changes every day. Living every day like we're living for today now. We gon' be okay, changes every day. We're living every day like we're living for today See, my life wanna challenge me. Everything's unbalanced, B. What goes around's gonna come around, see Good karma's gonna come for me now. Take notes, wanna see how? Speak loud, got a free mind. Now the world's gonna be mine. So see you later, it's me time, yeah. Let's talk me time, I help others in my free time, I Speak fast, gotta rewind, I'm switched on, it's prime time, I Say a pray when I feel down as I carry on with the peace sign. Peace sign, three times. One love and now it's eat time, yeah. I'm having these visions, I see my life is right. Yeah, my life is right. It's the beginning of seeing heaven's light. heaven's light. I'm on the right path, oh yeah, the riches, and I'm burning these bridges. I see some people, they switching already. I've been asleep too long, you know I gotta wake up. All these illusions in my head, I gotta break up. And everybody wanna say I ain't no fighter. But I'ma show them every day that I'ma rise up. We gon' be okay. Changes every day. Living every day like we're living for today now. We gon' be okay. Changes every day. Super wasted in the wild west, investing eggs in a pile of nests. Head to the clouds, I'm out for success with a lot of light at the end of my stress. Pray for a bundle, I need a dollar today in order to see tomorrow. My soul on the hand, I should speed and slow for paper bags gonna come. So, on my calm, rest, prosper, take control, forward, take a toll. It's adolescence, passing tests, mentally old, full of open wounds and bridges burn. So, get the weapons raised, we pop. Many questions raised, won't stop seeking to change, cause pop got pop. Now the shoulder heavy, made the days go off, flip a page, go off. I just turn to my poetry, scripting the way. 
supposed to be Lead way for the soldier disorder Despite the pupils are poking me Worst fingers and eyes are all of me Make a stronger me And it properly proper me Polish and sharpen my pen is the artery Then put it down when you doubted me I got the mindset, I got my people And everything around me is so evil Looking for guidance while I'm writing to your mama Hiding now cause I don't want no drama I've been asleep too long, you know I gotta wake up All these illusions in my head, I gotta break up And everybody wanna say I ain't no fighter But I'ma show them every day that I'ma rise up Changes every day, living every day like we're living for today now. We gon' be okay. Changes every day, we're living every day like we're living for today now. Like we're living for today now. Um, and that track there was Change by P. Unique. And now. Um, we're going to be heading into an interview that M did. So, did the stories and languages of South Australian, uh, sorry, South Asian people feature strongly in the version of Australian history that you got taught at school? In her recent book, Australia Nama, historian Samia Khartan challenges the colonial myth that European knowledge traditions are superior to those of colonised peoples. A few weeks ago, M met with Samia to discuss the importance of South Asian languages and stories as a source of transformation, creating new ways of understanding what gets called Australian history. Thanks so much for joining us today, Samia. To start, I was wondering, would you be able to just introduce yourself for listeners? Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm Dr. Samia Khatun. Uh, I am a historian and I was teaching history in Bangladesh for the last two years and I'm about to move to London as a historian working at SOAS at the University of London. And yeah, I've written a book called Australian Armour and it's, I'm hoping, going to turn Australian history inside out. Yeah, can you just give listeners who haven't seen the book yet or had the pleasure of reading it a bit of an insight into what you talk about? This is a book that began uh, exactly 10 years ago when I first travelled into uh, the Australian interior. I went to Broken Hill where there's a little mosque and these little mosques exist right throughout Australian interiors. Mm. Um, and I went there in search of a Quran that I had heard was in the mosque and I'd, I'd read it in an Australian history book. There's, mm. a, there's an old Quran and I thought, you know, if I read this Quran, I'll know who these people were, where they'd come from. Anyway, so I've turned up and I'm looking through all the things and suddenly I find this giant book and in English someone's written on it the Holy Quran. And I go, ah, oh, yes, this is what I came looking for. And I opened it up and it wasn't the Quran, but it was a 500-page book of Sufi poetry in Bengali, which is my mother tongue. And I was just, you know, I was like gobsmacked. I I sat down on the mosque floor and I just started reading and I sort of didn't stop reading until I'd mm. written an entire book about how how this book actually got to Australia and how non-English language sources are completely missing from Australian history books. And it is sort of a quest novel in some ways. I mean, well, it's not a quest novel, obviously, but there's that 
organizing structure. Oh, very much so, because what happened was when I found this text, it just turned upside down the story about the Afghans having built those mosques in Australia. And not only is it a poetry book that's not the Quran, it's a book that you read out loud, like you perform it, mm. right? So there would have been performing there would have been people travelling in Australia performing Sufi poetry. You don't have a book like this unless there's also an audience who's going to listen to these performances, right? So what happened was I just, I, I, it really was the beginning of a quest. I went into Australian archives. You know, your standard archives, like your customs records, your port records, looking for who the Bengali speaker who bought this book to Broken Hill might have been. And what I found was completely beyond what I expected. And what did you find? So as I searched and I searched, not only was I finding, you know, all these different types of workers and merchants who are coming from South Asia, I also found this, you know, literal treasure trove of other non-English language sources that Australian historians just don't quite know what to do with. Mm. So I found like, you know, a 200-page Urdu manuscript, Mm. a 300-page Persian dream interpretation manual. And then it became really clear that if you want to tell the history of these South Asians, and by South Asia here I'm talking Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, if you want to tell the histories of these people in Australia in the 19th century, the best place is Aboriginal language sources because Aboriginal families is where these men ended up. Many of them married into Aboriginal families and because the oral record is so strong there, some of these families are still singing bits of the songs that came from South Asia back in the 19th century. So I ended up realising that Australian history books are just systematically ignoring, mislabeling, misrepresenting Mm. non-English language sources. And if you're going to write a history foregrounding the languages of people colonised by the British Empire, you can't actually just stick them in to the existing narratives of Australian history that we have. It actually completely changes the overall arc of what is history today so it's it's been an incredible incredible quest to find not only you know the story of this particular book Mm. but also the story of the imaginations of colonized peoples essentially when i read your book i really also read it as an an argument against a simple politics of inclusion that it's not that's just not possible to take these stories, these living, breathing stories, and include them within some sort of like dominant linear progress narrative of Australian history, which we, so many of us, learn at school. That sort of what you're saying is that it, it actually, it, it upturns, it disrupts, it transforms, it's, it's whole new histories. Absolutely. Like you just, if you argue for the inclusion of these stories into a linear tale of progress, what you end up missing is the most exciting thing about these texts is that they're embedded in philosophies and ways of thinking and ways of knowing time, the past and the future 
that aren't progress, mm-hmm. right? In Australian history classrooms today, in our schools, in our universities, not just Australian history classrooms, modern history classrooms, mm-hmm. we are all learning the story of progress. We are learning the story of progress that sometimes is told in the language of development, right? What these texts give us are keys to unlocking other ways of thinking about time, other ways of thinking about what could be in the future if we move away from this idea of progress. And that is something that at this particular moment in time, given the climatic crisis we are in, we need access to these different ways of thinking. So it just became an incredible journey into all these other different libraries of knowledge that are actually at our fingertips but are never allowed to be in our classrooms. Mm. And that thing about unlocking, though, you know, it's not... Like, so often that sort of metaphor is used in a very you know, very certain power dynamic of like the white expert or translator or interpreter unlocking stories or histories in other languages. But what you sort of, or the book sort of seems to be saying to me is that those those keys for unlocking are embedded in the stories and the histories themselves and the languages and the philosophies themselves that you can't actually, it's not about, you know, it's not about the white saviour going out and like finding all these hidden stories, like which would just be a narrative of discovery and exploitation and colonisation, right? Like that it's actually... It's from within the stories and histories and peoples themselves that these futures are held. Yeah, one of the most eye-opening realisations that happened as I was sinking deeper into the logic of some of these archives and texts in both South Asian languages and Aboriginal languages was the realisation that these are stories that are alive. Mm -hmm. These are not dead objects. So one of the corollaries of inserting these kinds of stories into a progress narrative or a linear idea of um, history is to always say that this sort of belongs somewhere in the past. Mm -hmm. Here is an Aboriginal dreaming story. Yep, we've inserted it into our tale. We're going to move on to the future that doesn't include it in it. Mm -hmm. Now, what I found was that actually these texts are very much alive in the sense that there are communities and peoples and oral histories and ways of thinking, being, dreaming, in which these narratives are incredibly, absolutely central to them. Mm -hmm. It's just in what is known as rational knowledge, what is known as historical truth today, we have no means of actually recognising the value, the ongoing aliveness of them because we've been told for so long this is a dead way of thinking, this is a backward way of thinking. So, you know, like I'm hoping that my book is going to encourage people who are from those communities to actually start Mm -hmm. taking their own knowledge traditions and actually running with them because I guess in many ways it was a book that allowed me to do that with my Mm. own, you know, vast South Asian cultural corpus that actually is very much alive in my own family histories. Mm. So that's one one big thing that I'm hoping that this book will kind of help people Mm. start to do a bit more. And could you maybe give some examples of the types of stories that you came across that I guess 
surprised you or gave you joy or gave you energy? Because you know, I know that when I was reading it, there were so many instances where I was just like, my God, I just within within this you know colonized white person's mindset that I have, I could never have conceived of this of you know of camel merchants suing the Western Australian government, you know, for breach of contract around the white Australia policy. You know, I was like, whoa, mind blown. Um, and there were so many moments like that in the book. Are there any things that, I guess, yeah, stand out for you that, you know, when you came across them, when you were doing this research? So I just found so many surprising stories that have no place in normal history books. But one of the ones that, you know, I just can't forget is just the number of South Asian Muslim women I found in the 19th century and early 20th century. The story always is that it's men who travel, mm. but Actually, the reality is no one goes looking for the women who traveled. And when you go looking, you find them. So then this would have to be in some ways one of the, you know, larger discoveries I made was the question that you ask about the archive is actually going to determine the answer that you're going to get from the archive. So it, it was story after story after story. Oh, and the other one that just blew me away was when I found that account of Hassan Musa Khan writing to, I think it's the Worry Elder Times. He writes that there was a community of South Asian Muslims who had dreamed and prophesized that Gallipoli was going to happen, right? I just was like, what? (laughs) What is going on there? And, you know, so what happened was I kept finding these stories about people dreaming in Australia, so South Asian Muslims dreaming and then write issuing prophecies and then they would publish them in Australian newspapers. And I just was like, I don't understand what's going on until I remembered all the stories about prophecies in my own family. Now, this is not in the book, but this was the key that allowed me to understand, oh, my God, people having dreams and then issuing political prophecies about what's going to happen with the state, with Turkey, with World War, with the Great War. These dreaming about it and writing about it is actually a central part of Muslim knowledge traditions and this has always been in my family history Mm. and here are these stories that usually would be called myths in my family history and they're going to help me unlock these archives in Australian newspapers you know they're going to help me make sense so it it was I can't you know innumerable aha moments like this where I would find something out there and then suddenly I'd be able to work out how to decode it Samia Khatun there, challenging some colonial myths. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. M continues the conversation with Samia about what her book, Australian Nama, has to offer contemporary political activism and how changing the way we understand the past makes it possible to create a different and more just futures. M picks up from... Samia's research on the white Australia policy. A lot of your research, uh, you know, sort of looking at the 19th century, late 19th century, early 20th century, around 
the time of the birth of what's known as, you know, the white Australia policy and this, you know, moment of escalating racism and the tightening, I think you describe it as the sharpening of borders and of increasing racial categories and tools of like racial arbitration to allow white settlers to control those borders and who comes in and out. I found it so rich reading about that when thinking about today. Can you maybe speak a bit to that? Absolutely. So one of the things that happened when I found this history book, uh, you know, the book in Broken Hill, is I started wondering how did this person negotiate border regimes? How did they negotiate white Australia? And, of course, it's absolutely at the height of, you know, nation-making. And in some ways, the detail of that border drawing is very much in my book because I want people reading the book to know the history of why we are at where we are today. Mm -hmm. We are currently at a moment experiencing a global refugee crisis that is a result of the nation state being the organising unit of human community, right? Well, how did we get here? When did this border regime stuff start? So some of those answers specific to Australia are in, in the book. But one of the things that has always, always bothered me is in negotiating border regimes, South Asians have a long history, South Asians and every other minority group have a long history of demanding inclusion, right? And demanding inclusion as the minority into the dominant group. I wanted to know, are there alternatives? Are there things you can do that don't demand for inclusion and thereby uphold the nation, uphold the nation as the only way we can organise humanity? And that's exactly what I found in this history book in Broken Hill because it turns out history books have been deeply implicated in the birth of the nation, right? And so this alternative history that is in Broken Hill currently and also in Aboriginal historiography, in Aboriginal language historical storytelling traditions, you see a whole range of other imaginative geographies apart from the nation that have organised human community. And if they've organised human community in the past, they can organise human community in the future. So it very much gave me clues into the strategies people use to navigate mm. border regimes and it gave me ways of making strategies for today to navigate border regimes. In the book, one of the chapters, you write about a meeting with Reg Dodd and trip to, to Finnish Springs and the time you spent with him um, on country. We actually had Reg Dodd on the show a few months ago when his book Talking Sideways came out. So I just wanted to sort of ask you about that and I guess, yeah, what you learnt from his, you know, generosity and wisdom and like working and walking alongside him. I've learnt more from Reg Dodd than I have from almost anyone in Australia in terms of how to actually see country. The what he did was he took me out onto Arabana country and basically had the generosity to lead us through sort of the fundamentals of Arabana storytelling. It was almost like learning the alphabet. Um, it's, you know, it's not a written language, Arabana, but you, the way that he was giving us lessons was how he might give a three-year-old or a four-year-old child a lesson. So you got the absolute basics and he, I got to see how in Arabana thought 
a history book is actually land. You know, people、mm. know how to read the land as if it is a history book. So the entire concept of what a history book might look like and what the relationship of a history book to an imagined community、mm. or an imagined geography might be, all of that just completely switched around. But you know, the thing about Reg that was just incredible is his incredible warmth and welcoming. Modality in which he teaches, and that doesn't mean that you get to just turn up to Aboriginal country and take what you like, you know. Because when I first turned up there, asking him about Arabana language, he wouldn't talk to me. He said, "What you've got to ask yourself, Samia, is why are you here? Why on earth have you come?" And you know, here I was, a university researcher, a university-based researcher, and he was an Aboriginal elder, and. You know the way that historically it has worked. As soon as I go and write a PhD or a book on Arabana language, I become the expert over someone like Reg, and he he very much pointed that out that that was what was at play. But it was one of those encounters that only shifted when I told him about the kind of quest that I was on. You know, wanted to find who could read this Bengali book, and these people had been travelling through Arabana country and. As soon as I started telling him about my own language, he just became it just it just switched. He wanted to know exactly what was in that book and who those people were, and then he invited me back to country. He wanted to he it was much more a a relationship of then exchange as opposed to the researcher taking. So it I've learned from him not only just about Aboriginal. Country and how to see how history can look like the land. I've also learnt the most enormous amount from him about respectful relationships with people who you're doing research with. You know, we the the knowledge politics of doing、mm. history, oral histories of this sort.、Mm. And do you consider yourself an activist scholar? Absolutely. I think I consider myself an activist above and beyond、mm-hmm. everything. <laughs> All of this started even before finding the text in Broken Hill. All of this started because when we were on an anti-racism activism bus trip through rural New South Wales in 2005. All these Aboriginal people would continuously be saying, "Oh, where are you from?" And when I'd say Bangladesh, people would say, "Oh, I had a great grandfather from Colombo or Karachi or Bombay or Noakhali."、Mm. And you know, I've it's always been in activism spaces、mm. that I've come across these kinds of incredible connections, cosmo- incredible cosmopolitan connections that have just never found expression in the larger. Public life of Australia, I feel so. Yeah, it's it's both activism is both the site that's generated the most pressing questions for me, and activism is again the site that I want to take the findings of this book back to to see how I can enliven, you know, some of the spaces I've been involved in. And I know we sort of started touching on this a bit before, but drawing on from that, what do you feel the book offers? In terms of political action, in terms of collective organising, in the here and now. So one of the things that this book challenges activists and community organisers to think about is the epistemological superiority that sort of underpins the progress narrative. 
So the progress narrative doesn't just belong to the right wing. It also belongs very much to social justice movements. Without an idea of we are getting better over time, we find it very difficult to imagine social justice movements, right? I want to challenge people to think about the architecture of these progress narratives and their inbuilt racism and at the same time not just critique it but also go look at all these other different types of narratives about time Mm. that can actually inform your organising. I want progress to stop being the only pathway that Mm. people can imagine to the future. I feel that the language of progress and development has actually colonised the language of hope for activists. And I I feel that it's a moment right now, particularly to do with climate change and climate justice, where we need grammars of activism that actually move beyond this imprisonment within this idea that European knowledge systems are just better than everyone else's. Mm. So there's this line towards the end of the book in the conclusion where you write, one key to finding a way out of the prison house of colonial modernist thought is refusing to interpret the world through the mutually exclusive antagonistic binaries that structure modernist analysis. And that really struck me for a range of reasons, um, both sort of exactly what you were saying. I guess when I read that, I thought of I thought of Audre Lorde's, you know, very famous quote, the master's tools are not to dismantle the master's house, and sort of flipping it of like that the master's tools won't create the other world that we know is possible. You know, almost that the master's tools or the, you know, the key to the prison house will only build the prison house. Um, and that actually if another world is possible, which, you know, these stories show that it is, you know, ways of narrating the past are also ways of creating the future. But you need different different grammars, different words, different languages, different stories in order to create those different futures. You can't assume that if we just keep using the same tools or the same mindsets or the same history books that we'll actually be able to live those futures. Absolutely. The One of the most incredible, one of the most profound prisons that I feel we're in is this notion that enlightenment thought is where social justice activism begins. Mm. And this is an idea that is so deep within us. You know, the very first History from Below book, which I would say would be C.L.R. James's The Black Jacobins, Mm -hmm. and it's a story of an uprising in Haiti, right? And it's an uprising that's happening at the same time sort of as the French Revolution. But in that particular telling of the story... C.L.R. James has um, the protagonist, an enslaved man. He goes into his master's library and picks up an Enlightenment history book that's about, you know, taking the shackles from the masters. And he reads this French Enlightenment history book and he scripts himself into this French Enlightenment story mm. and then leads everyone to rebellion, right? That's the That's the old 1960s mm. telling of how a rebellion or a social justice movement happens. You take an Enlightenment thought, a European thought, and you script yourself as a person of colour or, you know, a a colonised person. You script yourself into that. You make that your own narrative and you go with it. Now, that's, that's what I would call colonial modernity and it's one of these strategies that people have used for a very long time 
I actually think it's start, it's very much time to start using new strategies. What are books in other libraries that aren't the master's library? What does a book from Reg Dodd's library look like? And what would it mean to use that to structure your organising? What does it mean if you use a book of Sufi poetry to think about how humans and self and other can work with each other? You know, can we get out of this notion that self and other are mutually antagonistic opposites that have to be defined against each other? Mm. Is it in those libraries that we find keys that let us out? Mm. There's so much that I think in the book is relevant to, you know, contemporary political activism. Even just, even just, I mean, it's, it's, it's basic, it's also profound, but, you know, the, the, the power of narrating your own stories and this recognition that stories are living and breathing and they're to be heard and changed and, you know, continue, that they're not relegated to the past, that they continue into the future. You know, that has profound implications for activism in so many ways as well, I feel. As well as then also some of the stories that you do include and touch on, be they stories of, you know, collective organising on the docks and in the ports around Australia or the ways in which people have used the courts and laws to, you know, challenge regimes or the way that workers, you know, for example, camel drivers have, you know, organised together. Like there's so much in there that can actually be drawn upon in collective, contemporary collective action, I feel, that isn't, you know, that just isn't often recognised or remembered, um, let alone carried with, you know, younger activists, I guess. Yeah, one of the most beautiful metaphors that I've ever come across, um, and it comes to mind as you speak, because, you know, in having found a Sufi text, I've actually gone and tried to write a Sufi text disguised as a history book. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the most beautiful metaphors about Sufi texts is that reading them is kind of like sitting in front of a mosque, but watching the mosque being reflected in the pools of water that are on the ground. So mm. at every hour of the day, the reflection looks completely different, right? So my wildest dream is that at different times when you come to this book and read something, it different things will jump out at you depending on precisely what it is that you're working on. Mm. And I guess in many ways, writing a book like that meant just doing layers and layers and layers upon layer of thinking and sort of putting quite a lot in there that can be read at many different levels. But yeah, well, I guess I'm hoping that it just, it's like a toolbox for people who are committed to social justice projects. You know, there's a lot in there and I don't quite know who's going to pick up what and run with what, but Mm. I hope that it has something for lots of different types of people. Thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, Samia. It's been so good. You asked some really good questions. <laughs> Thank you for getting me thinking. Um, and that was M having a really interesting conversation with historian Sharma Khatun about her recently published book, Australian Armour. Uh, if you want to read more about South Asian stories and strategies of resistance in so-called Australia, you can find Samia's book, Australian Armour, in any good bookshop. So 
So up next we're going to talk to Monique, who is a lawyer from the Human Rights Law Centre about the cashless welfare cards. Good morning, Monique. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm really good. Um, I was wondering if you could start just telling us a little bit about the work that the Human Rights Law Centre does. Sure. So the Human Rights Law Centre um, is a community legal centre that does um, strategic advocacy and litigation around human rights um, issues in Australia. Um, and so one of the areas that we focus on is um, the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, in Australia. And so that's where this work around the cashless debit card um, fits in. Yeah. So I guess it's kind of not really that much of a new policy so much as like we've had income management in the NT since the intervention in 2007. So can you just explain like what's kind of the difference between those two policies? Yeah, sure. So that's that's a very good point. So the current system in the Northern Territory that regulates um, social security payments for a lot of people, including um, a lot of Aboriginal people, is by way of income management, um, and that was born out of the Northern Territory intervention in 2017 and is really discriminatory at its core. And so the laws that are currently being considered by the federal government are trying to transition people um, captured by that system and potentially more people um, to another system where they have to use um, a thing called the cashless debit card. Mm-hmm. And so that's a card that um, restricts your ability to use cash um, to buy things. And so 82% of people likely to be affected by those laws in the Northern Territory will be Aboriginal people. And so Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory have really borne the brunt of failed policy for 12 years um, since the intervention. Um, And we think it's their expertise that should inform what happens next. And so it's really deeply disappointing that instead of Listening to those experiences, the federal government is trying to rush through these new laws, essentially transitioning Aboriginal people from one discriminatory system to another. Mm-hmm. So I think it was 50% um, in income management, but is like is that going to stay the same with the cashless welfare cards? Like how much of their welfare payments will be on the cards? So the people that have participated, um, who have been forced to participate in the cashless debit card trial sites, in other areas, it's generally 50 to 80% of money that is um, restricted from the social security payments. So that's, yeah, 50 to 80% of already really small social security payments are subject, will be subject to restrictions on how the money can be used. And in the current drafting of the law that's being considered, there's actually scope for the minister to have more powers um, to to move that amount, and so potentially the minister could designate that amount um, up to 100% with minimal safeguards in place in terms of how the minister can exercise that power. Mm, that's crazy. Um, so are there other things in the bill and what's kind of happening with it in parliament at the moment? So it's gone through a funny process in terms of usually when a law like this is referred to a committee for consideration, Mm -hmm. um, which is what's happened here, um, usually um, organisations and people are invited to make um, written submissions and then the committee would hold a hearing um, and invite people to come and speak to their submissions and their experiences. But this committee, um, this process has been back to front in terms of Um, the Human Rights Law Centre and Aboriginal organisations gave evidence already and now we're going through the 
preparation of submission process. Um, and so that's, that's where this is at at the moment. People um, and organisations are in the process of preparing their submissions um, to the committee that's considering the laws and they're mm-hmm. due um, in October mm-hmm. or later in October. Later in October. Cool. So, you know, we talked about it before how this kind of a similar policy has been around for a while and that means that it's also been evaluated and what is, you know, does is it working and what's the impact for kind of people on the ground? So the cashless debit card um, has been trialled in a number of sites around Australia, not in the NT um, yet. Mm-hmm. And so those trial sites um, were criticised heavily by um, by not just us, by a group of different um, organisations in terms of those places where the cashless debit card has been trialled have targeted places where there's... Um, Lots of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people living. Mm-hmm. So I think it was, it was trialled in Sejuna and 75% of people captured by it there were Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. In the East Kimberley, it's been trialled um, and 80% of people there um, identified as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and 50% of people in um, the gold fields um, in WA identified um, as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander there. And so the government did um, do an evaluation of um, the cashless debit card in the trial site, and there's really limited evidence to suggest that it is effective in doing the things that it wants to achieve in terms of changing people's spending behaviours. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I guess we're... Thank you. We're also talk, hearing a lot about you know, welfare recipients at the moment. So I was wondering if um, how this relates to, you know, conversations about drug testing um, welfare recipients as well. Like, is that something that you guys are thinking about or talking about? Well, yeah, I think it was the Minister for Social Services yesterday made some pretty um, awful comments about people uh, who are turning to Social Security in times of need and making some... um, pretty gross generalisations and stereotypes. Um, and that's that's completely inappropriate. Um, you know, this policy in the NT is effectively punishing people who have no choice but to turn to the social safety net because of the lack of paid jobs in their communities. And rather than dealing with that underlying injustice, the government is just imposing policies um, like the cashless debit card that are seeking to exacerbate it. And that's really part of a broader trend that this government, um, that you can see with this government in terms of they are refusing to raise the rate of new start. Um, they seem really hell-bent on pursuing people for debts, that um, robo-debts that people have never even really owed Centrelink. They continue to be subjecting single mothers to the punitive parents' next program mm-hmm. and... Um, the current federal government is committed to continuing the work for the Dole program despite Aboriginal organisations calling on them repeatedly to replace it with um, an Aboriginal-led model. So that's the context that this is really falling in. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are other Aboriginal groups calling for instead of having you know, the cashless welfare card? They're calling for, you know, for consultation um, with Aboriginal um, people and organisations. Um, as far as we're aware, um, Aboriginal organisations in the Northern Territory weren't consulted um, as part of the government trying to introduce these new laws. 
Um, and the, their view is that, um, you know, the government's going to waste a significant amount of money rolling out the cash for debit cards throughout the Northern Territory rather than tackling the systemic causes of hardship in remote communities. And that money would be much better spent on investing in supporting Aboriginal people, communities and organisations to develop their own responses to the challenges that they're experiencing. Mm, I think that's a really interesting point you raised about the money, you know, because there has, like you touched on before, um, been a lot of calls about raising the rate of New Start um, and the government saying, you know, there's not enough money and that's not going to do anything, but yet implementing massive policy change like this also costs a lot of money, right, to be giving everybody those cards and doing changes within the setup of how Centrelink payments work as well. It's really expensive to roll out a system like this and then there's also the practical things that come along with, um, you know, forcing people to use a bank card um, to um, to buy their the goods and services that they want to buy. And in Melbourne, I think we can take it for granted that, you know, it's, it can be relatively easy for us to operate in a cashless way. Mm-hmm. But um, the ability to do that, um, the more remote you go in Australia... Is um, it's difficult and it's challenging to um, you know interact with online systems like internet banking um, and the practical realities of remote life. Yeah, I remember when they introduced income management, um, you know, 12 years ago now, that there was problems with only being able to use the cards at Coles and Woolies, which means that if you live in the NT on a remote community, you have to travel really far. Have they changed that? Like, where can you use the cards and where can't you use the cards? So they're transitioning from the the basics card that used to, um, that, that currently exists as part of the income management scheme in the Northern Territory to the cashless debit cards, um, it's our understanding that the cashless debit card will have more usability in terms of it should be able to work wherever there's an FPOS um, facility, but um, there's still all of the um, kind of real-life consequences of being forced to um, purchase, use a bank card for the majority of your purchases in terms of it restricts the ability for people to engage in cash-based cash based transactions, mm-hmm. um, like buying um, affordable second-hand goods from op shops that maybe don't have FPOS facilities or on Gumtree if you want to pay cash for, um, you know, more affordable a more affordable couch or different um, things that you might want to buy for your house. Um, it can also limit um, people making small purchases um, in, in cash-based settings. And so there was a review of the cashless debit card that found that there's situations like paying admission to the local swimming pool where you might need cash um, Mm. to do that and that's difficult to do if most of your money that you're getting is tied up on a card that you can't um, access cash for Um, and it also makes it difficult for um, families to pool resources to collectively buy expensive things like if families wanted to pull together cash to to buy a car to share for example that's that is a really difficult thing to do with um forcing people into the cashless debit card yeah cool thank you so much for this is there anything else that you want to add about this new policy well we um you know, the Human Rights Law Centre um, and a number of Aboriginal organisations um, in the NT and around Australia oppose um, the bill. 
um, you know, I think all Australians believe in a fair go um, and really the people who make decisions in this country should want to help people in times of need and not be punishing them. Cool. Thank you so much. Where do people go to find out some more information? So there's information about this on the Human Rights Law Centre website um, and also there's a number of um, Aboriginal organisations who have published um, their views on it um, as well. Cool. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. That was Monique from the Human Rights Law Centre um, talking about the proposed cashless welfare cards. Victoria's roadside drug testing program is not about road safety. In last year's governmental inquiry into drug law reform, it was noted that Victoria's RDT program is falling behind on latest evidence regarding impairment. Currently, Victoria Police can charge people for detection of either cannabis, amphetamines or MDMA. But those detections do not correlate with impairment. Impaired drivers should be removed from the roads and that's why we're urging an inquiry into Victoria's RDT scheme to ensure that the resources that are currently employed to make our roads safer are being properly used to make our roads safer. Help us refocus road safety onto what makes roads safe. Sign the e-petition parliament.vic.gov.au forward slash council forward slash petitions. And look for the Inquiry into Drug Driving Reform, Petition 117. A 3CR supporter. Most LGBTIQ people experience positive, intimate and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counselling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between queer Space, Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria and Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call 1800 542 847. With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call 000. A 3CR supporter. He was a Scotsman. Yeah. And the funny thing was, I was listening to a lot of Scottish uh, balladies. Okay, can you can remember anything? Like what? Can you remember? Uh, songs like um, The Banks of Loch Lomond. Yeah, you take the high road, I'll take the low yeah, road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You <laughs> take the high road and I'll take the low road. And I'll be in Scotland before ye. Me and my true love will never wanna be on the bunny bunny banks of Loch Lomond. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us the first yeah. time you ever walked the streets of Fitzroy? I didn't know anything about Fitzroy. One day I spotted this quarry fellow walking. I asked him, I said, where did you just come from then? Oh, I had to come from Fitzroy. I said, Fitzroy, where's that? He said, you don't know where Fitzroy is? I said, no. Nah. So he directed me to Fitzroy. He said, that's where, where all the mob is. So I walked through Exhibition Gardens. Nicholson Street. Nicholson yeah. Street. Yeah. In yeah. the Gertrude Street. I'm getting closer and closer. You getting more anxious? Or? Well, what, yeah, what? I'm thinking, because this lad's standing outside pub on the corner. He's looking at me. Like, I think I'm, I'm going to have to get in a fight here or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He looked at me real hard and he said, 
Oh, sorry, my brother. I thought you were somebody else. So who who do you think I was? Yeah. And he goes, Big Johnny Roach. And I said, I think that's my brother. Wow. And he goes, hang on. He comes out with this big woman, you know, beautiful woman, biggest cheeks and biggest smile. Mm. She hadn't seen me since I was three, three years old. Oh. And she said straight away, that's my baby brother, Archie. And who was that? Was Elma. Honey, Elma. Wow. Yeah. My big sister. That was Kutcher Edwards and Archie Roach um, from Kutcher's new carpool karaoke. And now we're joined on the line by Kutcher himself. How you going? Good morning. Good morning. Um, so that was some audio of you and Archie. Can you tell us a little bit about the project and the videos and what made you want to make them? Mm, firstly, even just listen. doesn't matter how many times you you watch, you know, the... The episodes or teasers or, yeah, that when I was just listening then, because you're listening to it, you're not actually watching it. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it, yeah, it, um, yeah, I just felt what was going through Archie's spirit at the time. Yeah. 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 It's a powerful, um, powerful story. Oh, yeah. You. It does. It, it, this is what, yeah, people might think that it's just a, a uh, four-episode you know, series, but it's much more than that, and it's telling of of the spirit that's in Fitzroy even to this day, you know. And, yeah, but um, the 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 whole series was was uh, not concocted, but sort of my wife, Fiona, who's, who's, who's uh, a 3CR on the board or some board there, long-time you know, connection to 3CR. We, um, yeah, I'm a bit rocked, actually, but... um. That's okay. It's a really emotional and intense thing to hear. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, um, yeah, yeah, it's just taken me back to... Yeah. And even to just sort of listen to... um, Read comments, read comments about myself, Archie, and... And Jackie, you know, that here we are, three removed children, and and yet we have the resilience to try and inform the uninformed as to as to what our responsibility is to hopefully make it better for for our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to come. And, yeah, it's been a... It's been, it's been an enjoyable process. But, um, yeah, we... John Harvey from uh, Brown Cabs had been wanting to sort of do an expose on me for a while. and uh, 
he came to myself and Fiona and said, oh, would there be a possibility of, of uh, maybe recording Beyond the Bars as a, as a documentary? And we sort of sat him down and said, the red tape that's needed to, to do that, John, is just ridiculous. It'll, you know, and the powers that be. And, and then Fiona came up. She'd been watching a bit of with a James Court and I'm thinking, wow, what? how would it be if if uh, we did something similar? So we came up with uh, Kutcher's Carpool Karaoke, but Carpool was actually with a K rather than a C. <laughs> but um, <laughs> you could have imagined uh, the KKK show yeah. <laughs> uh, featuring Kutcher Edwards, Archer Edwards and, and whoever, but... Um, yeah, uh, and and all thanks to you know John Harvey and and uh, Anna Grieve from Tamarin Tree uh, Productions and and everybody who worked on it. We we filmed in uh, November last year and mm-hmm. and you know doing just blocks of you know uh, blocks of Fitzroy and and uh, letting people know that you get. There's an old saying: you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. And and that's referencing, you know, you can you can remove us and and move the Aborigines out to the northern suburbs, but there's a spirit still there in Fitzroy, and mm. and that's what I wanted to, not only myself but the the whole production wanted to portray in in the measly four four episodes and. You know, um, Screen Australia, they wanted to create uh, online presence rather than TV. And and, um, so thanks to Screen Australia and and, um, hopefully when the word gets around and and, and the numbers start to get crunched, you know, uh, YouTube and and whatever and... Mm -hmm. Uh, Screen Australia will see that it it, it has a presence and it and but it needs to and we you know hopefully we're going to not only do a few more episodes in Fitzroy but attempt to you know not not that I should be doing stuff up in Redfern or Brisbane at Musgrave Park or mm. you know up on you know at, at Darwin or wherever but hopefully we can do Kutcher's Carpool Karaoke in as many sort of towns and cities as we can. and That would be great. Um, can you speak to a little bit, you touched on it, but why Fitzroy is like so important to Indigenous communities in Victoria? There were so many, there were so many organisations in Fitzroy. You drive up Gertrude Street now and there's only Mesa, mm. Melbourne, Aboriginal Youth Sport and Recreation. Uh, I, I really don't like calling it that. It's the gym to me, Fitzroy Stars Gym. Yeah. And the health service was uh, was based uh, where Charcoal Lane is now. And then a few uh, a few streets up on the corner of uh, I can't remember what street Gertrude Street was Corey Information Centre. And then up on the other side of Brunswick Street. Still in Gertrude Street was Koori Education Centre, and then up in um, uh, Brunswick Street, top end near uh, 
Victoria Parade was was VACA, and two four doors down was uh, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. Then right on the corner of Gertrude and and Brunswick Street was VAI, Victorian Aboriginal Education Association. Mm. So there was this massive presence, and uh, VACA was actually behind uh, uh, the old colonial. I can't remember what street. Yeah. And so all these, uh, then down Smith Street, you had uh, the cooperative, uh, you had the housing board, you had, there was just so many organisations in Fitzroy. But not only did, was Fitzroy part of all the organise, all the organisations, you you had when people, especially in our in our situation, mine Archie's, Ruby's, mm. dear old Ruby, yeah. uh, Jackie's, for people who who had come from institutions from the homes, or not even not even in the homes, people who had been you know chucked from pillar to post, born in let's say Swan Hill, taken to 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 Brisbane to a children's home or. Or a Kempsey, uh, what is it, Kinchilla Boys Home or Cootamundra Girls Home. Yeah. When they were told, uh, what's your last name? And they'd say, oh, oh, my name's, uh, uh, let's say, Smith. And then somebody would say, the Smiths, go to, go to, go to, go to Victoria, go to, go to, or go to Fitzroy, ask around, do you know any Smiths? So they'd come to Fitzroy. And then um, they'd say, oh, do you know where the Smiths are? And, this, and somebody would say, oh, the Smiths, they live out in Northcote, actually, so you're better off going out to Northcote. Or, or somebody would, would indicate, oh, this, you know, hang around, and in Archie's case, hang around, you might find somebody who knows your family. Mm-hmm. And that's how, that's, to, to go to Fitzroy was, was to reconnect in, yeah. in that sense and, Fitzroy, Fitzroy was this this amazing, and it was it was bustling. It was you'd, you'd walk up Gertrude Street or Smith Street or or Brunswick Street or Johnson Street, and you you were bumping into blackfellas, you know, every ten meters. It was an amazing place to be, and yeah, it sounds amazing. And uh, those and... days are gone now, but but the yeah. memories are still there, you know. Yeah. And it's really exciting to have projects like this that, you know, talk about that and remember that history and, you know, are teaching people as well. In the last two minutes we got left, um, yeah. can you yeah. just say how people can access and find, you know, the videos for Kutcher's yeah, Carpool Karaoke? Yeah, you, you look, Kutcher's Carpool Karaoke, there's actual, there's an actual website. I can't... Um, Kutcher's Carpool Karaoke. Kutcher's dot com yeah. and um, I've got I've got Fiona telling me everything in the background here. But, um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I saw it this morning uh, on Instagram also, as well. Know, you, can go, you can go to my my uh, uh, Facebook or my you know and and you you'll find the links there. But uh, w- what we'll have to do is drop a heap of postcards into three CR and yep. and. Uh, there's a thing called the QR, the, the code things, and you hover your camera of your smartphone over this QR code, and it yeah. goes it goes straight to the link. You don't take a photo of it. The camera just picks up this link, and, and it goes directly there. But um, 
Yeah, and 3CR played a big, big, big part in that, uh, as you can see, the, that episode with myself, Jackie, Archie, and dear Johnny Mac uh, in Studio 3 there. Uh, yeah. But thanks to 3CR too. Thanks so much for coming on, and we'll also put links on um, Thursday Breakfast page. So that's all we have time for today. So um, we had a really exciting show. If you want to hear more and watch the videos from Kutcher, we'll put that on the page. But that was Kutcher's Carpool Karaoke. Um, up next is Lost in Science, and we will be back next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.